Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Welcome to it. I'm John Fugelsang. You are on Channel 127. I'm competing with myself right now on uh, Dan Abrams Live on News Nation. I think I should tell you the one that you're hearing on the radio is the live me. The me on Dan Abrams live is not live. That's taped me. This is the live me. So you're welcome to watch Dan Abrams live with the sound down and listen to me live. It'll probably make as much sense as either one on their own. For the next three hours, we'll be coming at you with a lot of empathy, facts, and maybe bring you to the brink of entertainment. Our number is 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Uh, a week from tonight, Friday, November 3rd, I'll be performing at Lionsgate Comedy in the Berkshires. That's in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. That, I, I, I guess that means I'll, I won't be here. We'll have one of, the, one of the guest hosts who actually know what they're talking about. So you'll be in good shape if you can be here a week from now. I'll be performing live with our good friend Kevin Bartini up in the Berkshires and a lot more dates coming up in the weeks to come. we got a really good show tonight. Authorities in Maine are continuing their manhunt for the man suspected of killing 18 people on two different locations. On Wednesday night, there's dive teams searching the river near his abandoned car believing he may possibly be deceased or somehow near that location. Ivanka Trump has been ordered to testify in her father's civil fraud trial because, along with her siblings, Fredo and Shemp, Ivanka held a senior role in the Trump organization during the timeline of the alleged fraud. Now, uh, we're going to be live for the next three hours at 866-997-4748, and we'd love to hear from you guys. 866-997-GRIT. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer running this thing from the South Carolina Bureau. The great Thea Harper is running this thing out of Brooklyn. And my name's John Fugelsang. I'm so happy to be with you. We're going to be reachable at 866-997-GRIT, and we would love to hear from you. Later tonight, we're going to be having, honestly, for my money, one of my favorite interviews we've done all year on the show. Edwin Raymond was um, a young black man growing up in East Brooklyn, East Flatbush to be specific, of Haitian descent. He uh, grew up without a mom and uh, a father who was depressed, and he easily could have wound up going the wrong way. But instead, at a young age, he decided to become a policeman and try to change the system from within, try to help his community, try to fight racism by wearing the uniform. 
He soon found out how hard that would actually be, and he made a lot of international headlines when he led a group of officers of color in a class action lawsuit against the New York Police Department while he was still walking the beat. The New York Times did a big profile on him a couple of years ago. He has now since left the force and written a truly moving and incredible memoir called An Inconvenient Cop. My Fight to Change Policing in America. We talked to him a couple days ago. We're premiering the interview tonight. It is one of my favorite conversations I have had all year on this show. And I really hope you'll listen. And I really hope you'll let us know what you think. You can always write to us at our Facebook page. Tell me everything with John saying on SiriusXM. Or tweet to us. Uh, and even better yet, y- you can call us. You know the number. And hello to all of our Evil Army of the Night. We love hearing from you guys live. And hello to the daywalkers, all you sane people who get your sleep at night and then listen on the Fugelsang podcast or on demand or on the app. We love you guys. And, you know, you're always allowed to stay up or some boring night if there's nothing on TV. Give us a call. Tell us what's pissing you off. Tell us what's inspiring you. What's keeping you awake at night? What's getting you out of bed in the morning? We'd love to hear from you. 866-997-GRIT. Happy October 27th, everybody. This is the birthday. And if this is your birthday, man, you share it with some interesting characters. Theodore Roosevelt, Dylan Thomas would have been 103 today. Ralph Kiner would have been 101. Ruby D would have been 101. Happy birthday to John Cleese. Roberto Benigni is 71 years old. Simon LeBon. Simon LeBon of Duran Duran. Should I even tell them? Simon Labot of Duran Duran, who said the single funniest thing in the 80s when he said, I'm not a snob. Just ask anyone. I mean, anyone who matters. <laughs> Simon Lebon is 65 years young. Today would have been the birthday of Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots. Today's the birthday of Lee Krasner, the great American painter who was married to Jackson Pollock. Our friend Marsha Gay Harden won an Oscar playing her in that movie. Sylvia Plath, born the state in 1932. Happy birthday to our friend Gary Talent of the E Street Band, born the state in 1949. Happy birthday to Fran Lebowitz. And it was on this date, friends, 56 years ago, that Catholic priest Philip Berrigan and others of the Baltimore Four famously protested the Vietnam War by pouring blood on selective service records. Because that's how Catholics used to do a protest against shit Jesus actually talked about. We want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Yes, Chris. Yes, Chris. Okay, there's a news conference, and the main shooting suspect, Robert Card, has been found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Multiple law enforcement uh, sources tell ABC. Um, Robert Card did it. He took care of himself. CNN has reported it. There will be a news conference in Maine at 10 p.m. NBC News is also confirming this. The shooter is dead. May God have mercy on his soul. Um, if there is no God, well then... <laughs> Let me just say my heart goes out to all the victims, past, present, and future. This should not have happened. This man did not need to have access to this weapon. This man could have lived in a society where it wouldn't have been that easy to spray that much gunfire without a break. America and politicians like the new speaker are fighting every day to make the next Robert Card have a substantially easier time slaughtering innocent young and old people. God bless the folks in Maine. We'll be right back in just a moment. This is Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. 
There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Man, I, I, I don't want to be the one to tell you this. I hate being the one to tell you this, but um, Lauren Hill released her first single as a solo artist. This one here, Doo-Wop, That Thing. 25 years ago today, on the 27th of October, 1998, from the album Miseducation, which went on to be the first hip-hop album to win the Grammy for Album of the Year. And it still sounds great. 25 years ago today, 50 years ago today, some of you will be really mad at me for this, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips Midnight Train to Georgia hit number one in America for the first of two weeks on this date in 1975. Yes, Chris? L.A. was just too much for the man. What are you talking about? Oh, you're quoting me. Yes. That's why I took that midnight train. Look, I get it. I'd, I'd rather, you know, be in his world and live with Adam in mine. I should write that down. That sounds good. Prince released 1999 in 1982 on this date. Uh, That's the one with uh, Little Red Corvette. That was his big breakthrough record. Springsteen was on the cover of both Time and Newsweek on this date in 1975. That was when he got so cocky, he decided to hop the fence at Graceland and try to meet Elvis. Didn't really work out. And um, here's a couple of deep cuts. Bob Dylan released the Infidels album 40 years ago this date. Produced by Mark Knopfler featuring Joker Man, one of his greatest songs ever. And Neil Young released Harvest Moon, my personal vote for best Neil Young album ever on this date in 1992. A lot of great stuff. Oh, and Michael Jackson hit number one with Bad 36 36 years ago today, for God's sakes, and the first underground New York City subway line opened on this date in 1904. And I write it every day. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Let's go to Richard on the line from Iowa. Richard, thanks for waiting on hold. Good evening and welcome to SiriusXM. Hey, John. How you doing? Hey, I'm great. How are you, sir? Good. You know, I've got two things. One's uh, about the Scorsese film. 
Please. And the other, though, is ammunition that I think will can win every Democrat running for election in 2024. Well, maybe you should open and with what? that, but whatever you want to go to first. Okay, let's open with that one. I'll give you the answer. 50 million to zero. Yeah. You're talking about jobs, right? Exactly. The last three Democratic presidents, 50 million jobs. The last three Republicans, it's easier to say zero than negative 100,000, but 50 million to zero. Every net zero, net zero, net zero. I mean, you know, I mean, there were jobs created under them and then they lost them all. But you're right. Net zero. 50 million to zero. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Look, I, I think this is what I say. The last three Democratic presidents have left the economy better than they found it. The last three Republican presidents have left the economy worse than they found it. Numbers don't lie, homie. You know, facts. We have facts for ammunition. 50 million to zero. It's a good one. It's a good one. It is a good okay. one. Okay. Now tell me about the Scorsese yeah, movie, because I haven't seen yeah, it yet. So, so tell me. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I'll just say this. I went to go see it. I am a professional blues harmonica player. I've played for 35 years down in Austin, Texas. When I went to see this movie, the soundtrack, the very first thing you start hearing is blues harmonica. You've yeah, got Robbie Robertson talked about this. Robbie Robertson talked about composing this and putting the harp on it. Tell me, please. The soundtrack well, is beautiful. But it's, I was, there was something off about that movie that just, it, it was, for me, it was so off that I couldn't enjoy the movie. Here's the thing. The blues harmonica represents the poor, uh, okay. the oppressed. Yeah. It, you know, it, it came out of the Delta region and the black man and, you know, and yeah. so here I am listening to this m- movie. And I later found out that Scorsese used the blues harp to represent greed. OK, it didn't work for me. Didn't work. Oh, I was out okay. of balance. It was like Kawanaskazi for me the whole time. And what the heck? And then I kind of looked that up and I read about uh, the French guy that they got to play the blues harp during the greed sections of the, which is the whole movie. And it, for me, it was like, Whoa, this something's off here and I can't put my finger on it. And I just did. Okay. Well, I, 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 I got it. I'm hoping to go see it as soon as I can. And I will call back and I'll let you know my thoughts on it, but I will uh, keep an eye out for that. I've only heard the okay. soundtrack and I think it's one of Robbie Robertson's, maybe his last final gift to us, but uh, I, I can't compare it to how it works in context of the film. So you're the first person I've talked to who didn't love it and wasn't blown away. So um, I, I respect your review and I look forward to comparing yours to mine, man. Will do, John. 50 million to zero. I, I'm with you on that one. Have a great evening. 866-997-4748. Norman Tampa, how are you, sir? Welcome. You're on Progress. Hey, how you doing, John? Great, sir. Welcome. Yeah, good, good, good. Hey, here's my comment about the, the shooter, okay? I think Please. people are missing a very key point here. And okay. that deals with that the, he's a veteran and the and the lousy cutbacks that are the veterans of what we call, it's a program he's developed called OSI. Okay. And as a result of this program, in terms of where it holds treatment, certain medications for the treatment of uh Post uh, pain and post uh, uh, traumatic syndrome, the the suicide rate of veterans has gone up seventy five percent since six, uh, since uh, nineteen. I mean, for since two thousand sixteen. 
So people wow. need to take need to read that this, and you can read this stuff up, okay? And you can read it in your within the norms. I mean, okay. and it's over. There's an article written by the Cato Institute, Jeff Singer, Josh Bloom, talk about this in 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 in, in their article about that, and they will put re put this out. I understand. Uh, for the veterans, we can show you that this is the, the that these these the, that the veterans has adopted a crazed policy that uh, in 2016 that uh, was put out by the CDC, which is right. called dose tapering, and under this dose tapering, thousands of veterans have have, have been denied. And remember, now we've okay. gone through three wars, and so. Uh, but you look what's the what, wait three three wars since when, sir? Three what, what's the third war? Two thousand since 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 two thousand one. What's the third war? war? What's the third okay, war, sir? Well, you look at let's look at the we can't we got to include the Bosnian conflict. Okay. Oh, okay. I mean, Iraq war. Okay. I mean, we we wasn't really. Okay. And the Syrian. Yeah, I mean, the Syrian. Well, throw in Somalia. Throw in Somalia then, if you want. But yeah, Somalia, I mean, I understand what you're. Okay. Okay. But, but as my understanding happening. is that it's it's an average of 4,500 veterans who who die by suicide with guns every year. That's that's about 12 a day. But my understanding, Norm, uh, you maybe you know better than me, is over the last 15 years, the 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 suicide rate for vets with guns has gone up every single year. It's been a 31 percent increase over the last five years, uh, 15 years. All right. Well. And and by the way, yeah, well, non veterans by the way, non veterans in the last non veterans in the last fifteen years talking about the same thing. But that and and they were they were mentioned. Let me, I mean, let me, they were mentioning those in rural areas. Okay, so that okay. may be the complex here. But the the point is is that we are, are that these people that the the veterans administration has been under has not gone under scrutiny and oversight as to. It's uh, it's policy that it that it has uh, adopted, and so what happens is we're we're getting. If they look at the Atlanta situation, the same thing that you see: a young man goes in, goes to get his medication, uh, the pharmacy, and the guy says, "Well, no, because we got some guideline of the OSI, which stands for here, here's the disguise." Opioid, okay. opioid safety initiative, there but it doesn't go. just include opioid. And benzodiazepines are in, in, included in their SSRIs. Okay, Norm, I got I got to run. So tell everyone the name of your blog so they can check out your writings. You are within the norms dot com. Thank you, sir. A R E E within the norms dot com. It's very good to hear from you, and I thank you for calling. I want to go over to Orlando. Uh, Bill is on the line. Bill, thank you for waiting on hold. You're on SiriusXM. Good evening to you. Good evening, Friday. Friday evening to you, John. Hope all's well with you all. Very good. How are you? <clears throat> Doing well. Got a little smoking a little bit here, so I'm just enjoying oh. it. And is that is that legal in your state yet? No, it's not, and it probably won't be in my lifetime with this asshole governor of mine. No, it won't be. He's he's anti. The liquor industry owns him. The liquor. Yeah, well, I gotcha. I What's on your mind tonight? Light, but you know. My thing is, I, I called you earlier this year about uh, uh, mass shootings and, and what we can do about it. If we have a Congress and a president, that's the stipulation. If they revoke the uh, 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, signed in by Bush Jr., which basically gave immunity to the uh, gun and bullet manufacturers, right? Revoke that, and 
I think things will change pretty fucking quick because uh, along with banning assault weapons, that would probably, that would help too. You know, the, 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 you know, but I, I believe that, and and it's not brought up much, and I think it could be reversed. Like I say, we have to. It won't happen in this Congress, especially with this clown as, as, as this as, as speaker, whatever you right. want to call him, Christian, yeah. whatever. So, what mm-hmm. do you think? I, I just wonder. I just I just wonder when the blood drive is going to be there in Maine. You know how I am with blood. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, how, how many gallons of how many gallons of blood have you given, sir? Well, I just donated my 149th and a half gallon. I got about two more visits to go, and I'll be at 150. Then, who knows? So, yeah, I'll be at 150. 150 gallons. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I don't know how you yeah. do it. Don't know how you and do they, it. And they keep this all in one vat? Are you saying It's all in one vat. Something? He gave it all at the same time, yeah, which is really the incredible part. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. I, I, You know, look, it's been 37 years. It'll be January, 37 years I've been donating, you know. Amazing. And I, wish I, could, I wish I could donate my blood to the, to the people who in mass shootings or over in Gaza and or wherever. I wish my blood could go there. It counts, but man. It counts. You- it just you're giving blood, and it goes to people who need it. You know, and 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 if everyone did that, it would help more people. Don't it, it, be grateful that it's going to help save lives over here, and I'm sure it has. And that's the beauty of it is that oh, you yeah. and your donations have probably saved the lives of people you'll never meet and never know about. And that's kind of poetic to me. So I have a lot of respect for what you do, and I don't know how you're well, still standing. You. Go drink some orange juice. My God. Yeah, I have. I've, I've got a little bit here. But the thing is, my blood goes to children with cancer. That's I have the emails. I've told you this before. My blood yeah. has gone to the Mayo Clinic and, and, and St. Jude Children's That's Hospital. Great. So, you That's know, great. around here, I mean. But uh, I just want I, I hope you get Julian Simon back on just to quickly. I love when you get Julian Simon. From they'll, be week. My, they'll, they'll, they'll be back on next week. They'll they'll be back on next week. And Simon wants to move it to there. weekly, so I gotta, I gotta, you know, see. But Chris and Simon have a big blood feud; those two. So I gotta, I gotta make some peace here and play Jimmy Carter. But yeah, we're Julian Simon are going to be on again next week, and uh, we're hoping to move them to even more often than that. So don't worry, no worries, man. Thank you for calling, and I hope you have a great evening. Eight six six nine nine seven forty seven forty eight. I told you we're going to get to your calls tonight. Did I say it, Dave in Washington? You're on progress. Quick before the break, what's up? Hey, not too much, John. Hey, I think it was Beachside Bill, actually, that brought up this point about uh, Mike Johnson being like Mike Pence. And I agree 100%. Um, Hmm. But I think there may be a nuanced difference, okay? And I'm coming to you because I really respect your uh, analysis of evangelicals and all their their wackiness. Hey, um, the Mike Johnson, he was quoted as saying, you know, um, marriage. Gay marriage is a slippery slope. Um, you know, p- next people will want to marry their pets. Next people will want to marry children. Well, yeah. the thing is, what he leaves not out not consenting these, adults. Well, and they're not. They can't represent themselves in court. So there's no way that you know. It's like comparing apples and oranges. You know, your pet can't represent itself in court. Correct. And that's what marriage is about. It's about a legal contract between two consenting people. But the thing is, is um, I don't think Mike Pence would quite go that far. I think there's a slight nuance difference. Um, it, it basically, I think, comes down to their interpretation of honesty. I don't think um, Mike Johnson has any consideration of fidelity or honesty. The only thing he considers is power, I think. I agree with you. you I I agree with you completely. Yeah, I think that's the ideology. The ideology is God likes me more than he likes you, so I deserve power. 
and God likes me because I believe a lot of stuff that someone told me God wants me to believe, regardless of what the actual Bible says. So, yeah, I mean, their religion is criminalizing abortion and pretending they're better than you. That is their creed. That is it. Well, yeah, and they can't really do any bad because they're an instrument of God. That would be like them saying, if they admitted they did bad, that would be like saying God did bad or something, I believe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They speak for God. That's what fundamentalism is. Fundamentalism, the fundamentalism of all religions, they're the ones who know that they speak for God. They're the ultra conservatives of all. Think about it. Think about the ultra extreme conservatives of all religions. They've never been the good guys in any society ever because they're always the ones who believe they speak for God. Only they know what God wants. God hates the same people and things they hate. And they're not going to sit down with someone who represents Satan and negotiate school curriculum, marriage, anything. That's why they're dangerous. Yeah. And so totally the atheists like go after them. The atheists go after them by saying that they believe in sky fairies and whatever, you know, calling them stupid. I mean, calling them like deluded and saying they're brainwashed and it's all a cult. I, I get that, but that's only going to make them dig in. That's why I try to challenge them on their own book. Because when you read the actual Bible, if you read the Jesus parts, it's really hard to vote for Republicans after you read what Jesus teaches. And so I'm, you know, the atheists go about it their way. I'll go about it my way. I'm going to thump Bible thumpers with the Bible. And I got to run. I'm sorry. We will be right back. This is Sirius XM Progress. Don't go away. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You want to announce? You want to back announce our tune? Just so good. Well, the actor that's Charles, Joker Man by Bob Dylan. <laughs> the actor Charles Richard Mall has died yes. at age eighty. He played Bull on Night Court. It's amazing. Uh, 80. Uh, you know, you, you never would have thought that Harry would have gone first. But yeah, well, what a what a passing. Um, we've had Larry Kett on this show. And God, is, 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 are he and Marsha Warfield the, the only principals left? Because we, we lost the beautiful Marky Post last year. Yeah, we lost Marky Post. Um, we've lost, I mean, we lost Selma Diamond in the 80s. Um, wow. And we also lost, I'm going to double check my cast here. Charles okay. Robinson died in 2021. Wow. God bless Richard Mall. Hmm. Yeah. Haven't heard that theme song in a while, by the way. Uh, you know it's who I also the, have? It's one of the best. Sorry, it's one of the best. No, that's okay. I, so I was much just crazy funk. <laughs> yeah. I, can you imagine a sitcom having music like that today? Maybe. I, I also want to say I haven't heard George Santos in a while, but he, he pled not guilty today. There's some new charges in his fraud case. Uh, he was met by some supporters outside the courtroom. And by supporters, I mean people who despise him for the facts. Give a, give a quick listen. You killed my dog, George! Put that liar the in the fire! Put that liar in the fire! Put that liar in the fire! 
And those people are probably Republicans from Long Island. I want to point <laughs> that out. Wait a minute. They, they want to give them the electric chair for fraud? It's a little I, extreme. Yeah, it's a bit steep. Don't make me defend. Don't make me defend George Santos, you people. Uh, and I also, I don't want to talk about Dean Phillips too much because it's just, I, I, I'm playing into it all. It, it, it's such rubbish what this clown is doing. But, at a, you know, Dean Phillips is congressman with a lot of money and he's a rich asshole and he was all supportive of joe biden but now he's decided he wants to try to ruin the whole thing and by the whole thing i mean his political future um at a press event he was asked will you support biden when you inevitably humiliatingly lose the primary you know i know you're aiming to win the nomination if it doesn't work out will you uh back and endorse the eventual democratic nominee let me start with that absolutely i've expressed my admiration for the president I think it is imperative for the United States, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you care about democracy, if you care about freedom, I think it's terribly important uh, that a Democrat win this election. Uh, and I will do anything, I will give everything I have, every moment of my time, every ounce of my energy to ensure uh, that that nominee, whether it be me, of course, President Biden or somebody else, uh, becomes president. I think it is that existential. Uh, so the answer is yes. Boom. <laughs> okay, after running around the country saying he's too old to be reelected, see, see how that works out for you. Let's go to Mitch in Kent State. Mitch, thanks for your patience on hold. Welcome. You're on progress. Thank you, John. You know, you mentioned Gary Talent. Got to meet him a couple of years ago. He played here in Kent. Isn't he great? Uh, he was on our show. He's, he's wonderful. Band. Yeah, yeah he great has, guy. He does like a little late 50s, early 60s, kind of a Buddy Hollyish uh, uh, set, a little um, rockabilly, but uh, good stuff. Uh, also, John, uh, the other anniversary I mentioned was uh, Stevie Wonder's Talking Book release, released today, 1972. Nice. Yeah, of course. Uh, that, that, there's always that thing about the superstition that, that Jeff Beck was uh, originally supposed to have that song out before Stevie Wonder. I guess the, the intention was that Stevie Wonder to have Beck have that song as a uh, as a single. Um, yeah. But, um, nice. The, uh, it was overwritten, but. Uh, Good stuff, anyway. John, yeah. uh, every time there's a shooting, I always think back to Harry Nielsen, and, you know, and his passion after after John was shot. The, the, how he just about you know threw away his career and devoted it to to uh, the, the to end hang on violence. Um, yeah. And the ironic thing is, I just found this out. Is of course him and Ringo were in on this uh, on this uh, program, but uh, they uh, announced it. The week of October 25th, 1981, which they named National End Handgun Violence Week, which mm-hmm. was the same, you know, the, <laughs> the same week as this was. But, uh, you know, just God bless Harry Nielsen, because, uh, you know, it, it, it was so devastating to, to, you know, to lose his friend. And, uh, yeah. and nothing, nothing's changed and nothing has changed. And the, and the, uh, the reason I guess the reason why they, why they picked out October 25th was because in 68, that same week, uh, the uh, the Congress began considering relaxing uh, revisions to gun laws. Then, uh, that's right in '68. So, and you uh, know, it's so sad that just Harry Nilsson is. I mean, unless you're like a classic rock nerd like you and myself, Mitch. I mean, he's, and, and you know, he he died when I was really young. I I just know stories and legends. And and Marianne Faithful talks about the the caliber of drugs he did. And maybe some people know him from the song One or you know, the, the Jump in the Fire was in Goodfellas. But it it, it is uh, it is really sad. He's one of the guys who I'm I'm really waiting for him to have a revival. And uh, I'm sorry it didn't happen while he was still with us, which is how I feel about Sinead O'Connor too. Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, just um, you know, Harry. And the other you know, thing was John the um, on the gun thing. Uh, yeah, here really in quick. Ohio, there's Republican legislators that trumpet personal liberties when it comes to gun ownership, yet they demand government control when it comes to a woman's body. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just, just uh, you know, I just uh, hope this this law is. This issue passes next next month, and uh, right now it looks like the polling that uh, it will. But um, we can mm. we can only hope that uh, we go back to the uh, you know to way it should be that uh, you know government stay out of the bedroom. Yeah, uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, the same guys who talk about small government, well, they still want the government to be in your bedroom, in your uterus. Uh, they still want the government to have the power to strap a guy they decide is guilty to a table and poison him until he is dead. It all sounds like extremely... Bi- I mean, this new Speaker of the House thinks the government should have the power to criminalize what consenting adults do in their own bedroom. It sounds like massively bloated government, and I want the Democrats to start using that term against them. Wolf and sheep's clothing, no doubt about Knock it. Knock on, man, exactly always. This guy is. Have a great weekend, Mitch. Thank you, John. Oh, go ahead. Appreciate it. Thank you. I want to get to as many calls as I can in our final moments of the show. Sean in California, thank you for waiting on hold. Hey, brother. Well, real quick, you know, I mean, I know you heard Sean Hannity thought the way to solve the gun problem was, you know, because he took MMA and, you know, he took martial arts classes and stuff like that. So, so my thing is, you know, I mean, I guess Sean Hannity should tell everybody, Grasshopper, if you can snatch this joint from my hand, you can become high, too. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, man, I mean, the guy is nuts. And by the way, yeah. he's, he's not that smart, but... Hannity I mean, never have been that smart, no. He, he knows how to get your racist he, mom to like him. And he's overmatched because he's even trying to defend Donald bin Laden. He's trying to defend all these people that are just even crazier and and stupider than he is. And he's like, what do I do with this? Yeah, but again, he's looking at Tucker Carlson in the time slot before him and seeing that Tucker got fired for all the lies he pushed. Think about the lies Sean Hannity has pushed in his godforsaken life. Think about how many Americans and Iraqis are dead because Sean Hannity made it his mission in life 20 years ago to attack the patriotism of everybody who thought invading a country that never attacked us might not be a good idea. Hello. He's got no, more blood on his hands you. than Tucker on his best day. Fake Christians, brother. Keep on you. Keep keep uh, holding them to the fire with the religious stuff because they, I mean, this guy, Mike Tiny Brain Johnson, um, you know, he, he has no clue. I guarantee you he's never read the Bible. I well, guarantee I'm, you I'm sure he's, he's read, read parts of it. I'm sure he's well, read he's parts read of parts it. Of it. But he, right. sure has not, he sure has not read the parts from the character of Jesus telling you how to treat each other. Thank you for the call, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, I love this song. This is my favorite Neil Young album released on this date in 1992. we got to take a quick break. When we come back, it's my conversation with former NYPD officer Edwin Raymond, a black man on the force who led a class action suit of officers of color against the force and is now a full-time activist. I'm going to say this again. This is one of my favorite conversations we've had all year. This is Neil Young, One of These Days, from the wonderful Harvest Moon album. If you don't know it, it'll make your weekend better. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm so pleased to welcome Edwin Raymond to our show. He's a 15-year veteran of the New York Police Department and one of our country's leading voices and most informed voices on criminal justice reform. Uh, Mr. Raymond was raised in a poverty-stricken, mostly immigrant neighborhood in East East Flatbush, Brooklyn, 
And he was initially drawn towards law enforcement in the hope of creating positive change in his community and, as he puts it, to be an antidote to racially motivated policing. Now, you may have heard of him in 2016 when he was the subject of an explosive New York Times profile, a black police officer's fight against the NYPD, where he exposed the brokenness on policing from deep inside the system. And that article detailed his role as the lead plaintiff in a massive civil suit filed on behalf of minority officers in the NYPD. He's been awarded a Commanding Officers Award for Exceptional Duty, an NAACP Courage and Leadership Award, and in his new memoir, An Inconvenient Cop, Mr. Edwin Raymond goes further detailing why he decided to leave the NYPD, how he didn't see a path forward for reform working within the system, and how he now uses his voice and his platform to fight for better policing outside the confines of the NYPD. An Inconvenient Cop is an essential book. It's the true story of one of our country's most important whistleblowers, Against Police Injustice. It's an honor to welcome Edwin Raymond to SiriusXM. Thank you for, Thank being you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, this is a really strange time for policing in New York City. We're, we're now at a time when we have a conservative black former cop as our police chief who's unveiling police robots in the Times Square subways. It's all kind of surreal to me. I, I was so moved by your stories of how you first perceived the aggressive policing of the NYPD when you were a teenager. When did you decide you wanted to join? So I was actually, I started having negative experiences with police at about 15 years old. And I didn't understand why, especially because despite being surrounded by a few folks that were involved in criminality, I personally wasn't involved in any of that stuff. And I didn't understand why it kept happening, whether I was in midtown Manhattan uh, near near my high school or in Flatbush, Crown Heights, you know, all over Brooklyn. And after about three years of this treatment at 18 years old, I made the decision uh, that everyone thinks is crazy now. Uh, But to me, it was common sense. I I said, I'm going to join the police department so I can essentially analyze what's wrong uh, to see what can be done about it. You know, at 18 years old, I made that, that crazy decision. I don't think it was crazy at all. I mean, I, I, I think it was very noble, uh, your decision. I think you did it with the best intentions for your community. And, of course, it, it took you on a, on a real journey. One of the parts in the book that stands out for me, and there are many, is when you're talking about your first day as a transit cop. Is it true that on your first day, you were told that you should be hiding in a supply closet in the subway station to catch turnstile jumpers? Yeah, on the very first day, we were given quotas, and the quotas were, it's a trifecta, arrest, summonses, and stop and frisk. And the number was 4, 10, and 10. Four arrests, 10 summonses, and 10 stop and frisk every month. And in order to consistently meet the demands of, of that pressure, we essentially hid all throughout the transit systems, mostly in supply rooms, bathrooms, uh, that are for transit staff that the public doesn't have access to. They usually have vents, and sometimes you have to crack the door open slightly. Sometimes the vents are lower. You know, it's a low vent instead of a, a high one, so you have to get on your stomach. It, it's, it's insane what cops are really doing in those rooms just to meet the demands of, of the system. And, and to meet the quotas. I mean, the one thing that really stood out for me is that it really is a numbers game. I mean, including the NYPD's embrace of the broken windows police philosophy and and the CompStat technologies. It's all about just incentivizing arrest quotas. And it seems like there's no way that doesn't encourage racism. 
Yeah, well, you know, the racism is baked into the policy because depending on which precinct you 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 work in, what area you patrol, and certain details about that area, you're not given the same quota. And there are those who would try to justify that and say, well, if we're not getting homicides in Park Slope or the Upper East Side, why should cops be as aggressive? See, the problem yeah. with that when it, when it comes to broken windows enforcement is the number one thing that gets enforced, number one and number two are, bo- are both substance-related uh, offenses, which happen with the, which the Department of Health has uh, statistics shown empirically happens at similar or even higher rates in white communities. Um, so exactly. the idea that that behavior is a cor- there's a correlation between that behavior and serious crime makes no sense because in, in more affluent areas where that behavior is, again, possibly happening at higher rates, you don't have the, the same violent crimes. There's just no correlation. It's, it's a terrible excuse. And the thing is, in the 1990s, crime did plummet simultaneously as this was implemented, but it also plummeted in parts of this, parts of the nation where we did not adopt broken windows. San Diego, uh, I believe the, the plummet in crime was even steeper than New York and other places that adapted broken windows. And, and the, you know, one of the godfathers of broken windows himself, uh, former Commissioner Bill Bratton, has admitted that there's nothing to support it empirically, but his gut tells him that it works. Yeah. I mean, you you nail it in this book. Uh, let me quote you. Arrests follow people throughout their lives, pushing them away from mainstream society. Once they enter the system, their job prospects, housing opportunities, finances, relationships, and family security are irrevocably affected. It really seems from your book that from what we know about disenfranchisement, it, it leads people into illicit activity in the same way that prison encourages criminal behavior. Yeah, you know, it's one of the things that I guess being in born and raised and still living in the neighborhood, I can I see it firsthand every day. I see it with friends that I went to middle school with, that I went to high school with, when they're unable to get their lives back on track. When I would have conversations with them, unfortunately, a lot of it starts to those very early arrests where they, they spiraled downward and were never able to pick themselves back up. And when you look at the reasons for the arrests, first and what the infractions are, but now having a a real look behind the curtain, understanding that that officer was just responding to what was incentivized. It's it's really it's you know we should be embarrassed as a society, you know that this we're not contributing to to upward mobility and and true public safety by policing this way. And it's not to say that cops can do nothing right. You know uh, that's something we have to be careful of. There there is a service aspect to policing. It's 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 supposed to be a tax funded public good. And right. you know, the, some of the, a lot of the services do um, happen, but when it comes to certain demographics, certain neighborhoods, unfortunately, there's this other layer of of discrimination that, unfortunately, is is being carried out by law enforcement. I mean, as you put it in the book, the conclusion smacks us in the face. Police are at the heart of the very problem they are supposedly trying to solve. So much of your book is about how you became disillusioned by this system of policing that discouraged you from even interacting with the community you would sworn to protect. And I'm curious, was, was there a time early on in your years on the force when you weren't disillusioned? Was there a time when you really believed you were making a difference? Or was it always this pushing a stone up a hill and, and struggling with your conscience over what you were being asked to do? So I stood firm and to not engage in what, what I was being asked. 
Um, but I did believe that if I can simply get into the room and offer a better way that the powers that be, the people in the leadership positions would be receptive to that. And that's that's the, the biggest miscalculation that I had. You know, I was 22 years old when I joined and I was a lot more, again, not naive, but uh, more ideal um, in believing that because I also donned the uniform, um, I understood the struggles and the realities of being in law enforcement. Therefore, if I'm presenting ways that things can be improved, it will be taken with more seriousness than someone else. Because when an activist says it, right, even if the activist is right, in police culture, us versus them is real. So simply because it's coming from someone who doesn't do the job, despite how well their arguments are, people in law enforcement have a tendency to just, you know, not pay attention to people that don't know, you know, chuck them into a category of people that don't know what they're talking about because they've yeah. never done the job. So being that I also run towards the gunfire, right, towards the tower, um, I was I was under the impression that I'd be they'd be more receptive to what I had to say. It does seem in every page that the police force in so many ways is hobbled by its own tribalism. You know, that that instinct that these guys think is protecting them is actually holding them back and holding our society back and keeping them from being the kind of public servants that we deserve and keeping them from the kind of respect that they feel they're entitled to. Yeah, and good, good observation, you know, and, you know, what's dangerous is this is happening at a time where we're seeing police departments becoming more and more diverse, right? They're becoming more and more diverse, and it gives an illusion of the problem being solved because... Exactly. Especially after George Floyd, there was a exponential increase in not just diversity amongst the rank and file, but um, diversity in the leadership of police departments. And yet we still end up with a Tyree Nichols, right? Where every single yeah. person involved in that was black. From the officers That's to Mr. It. Nichols himself and even the, the police leadership in that city. And yet we still end up there after George Floyd. So that's, you know, while, while it's something that we have to pay attention to, true diversity is diversity in thought. You know, it's not simply a cosmetic approach of diversity, which, which is a big problem that we're starting to get into also, um, which is why I had to highlight that in the book as well. The way you write about racism is so infuriating and, and moving. And you're so right about Tyree Nichols, sir. We we got calls on the air from conservative listeners who were saying, well, how can this be racist if it's four black cops on one black person? And and the point I kept trying to make is that in this police culture, they believed in their bones they could get away with this abuse because it was perpetrated against a black citizen. That's why the cops did it. And you you write about being a black cop meant being on the receiving end of oppression while donning the uniform of the oppressor. You were mocked and insulted uh, by by your fellow officers. And it's amazing when I, I read about how you were ostracized because you supported Colin Kaepernick's nonviolent protest against police brutality, your friendship with the Women's March organizer, Tamika Mallory. It just sounds like as you became more aware and more focused on true justice as a policeman, it seemed to horrify the very weak authoritarian men around you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest criticisms they always have for anyone that has a critique on policing is, well, then you wear the uniform and show us how it's done. So the fact that I, I am wearing the uniform as, as they are, 
the fact that they don't have that response, they, they, yeah, they were horrified. They didn't know what to say. They didn't understand how I came to have the perspective that I did while being part of the blue. Uh, because honestly, there is a, 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 there's an idea that even though I'm a minority, I should be happy that I have a good job, good career, good benefits, and uh, shut up and, and just, again, just be happy you, you, you were let in, you have a good job shut up and fall in line so when you know i enter the police force and at first i'm very outspoken internally before i become the whistleblower with the times article as you mentioned earlier um again it, it just it confused a lot of them there are some today that didn't understand me then that are supporters now but as you would expect there are many that still see me as the biggest traitor snitch yeah. a rat every negative name you could think of and yet you were not a traitor to your oath at all to protect and serve. I mean, one of the things I get from your book is you you joined the force to reform policing, to help communities, to bring justice. And the irony is that you're doing that now even more so by being a whistleblower. I mean, you know, your your time as a cop is making the world a better place, but you're making such a bigger impact from the outside. One of the things that I think is like the theme of your book is that you say when you toss out bad apples, you're not changing a damn thing. You point out that you joined to fight racism and instead you were used as camouflage for racists. But it seems like the whole police reform conversation has to shift away from punishing the bad cops to a system-wide reform. Exactly. One of the first things I, I done in activism was support legislation to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York State, from 16 to 18, and it was it was um, it was interesting to watch as when the argument was to raise the age, all sorts of um, all sorts of points were made, basically saying that punitive measures will never get us will never get us the widespread result that we're looking for, right? right? But then after the laws change, the, the age gets gets um, gets changed to 18. I watched those same groups now shift to police reform, and the only thing they have to offer is punitive. And I'm like, wait, you paid specialists, you paid experts to make arguments on human psychology about why punitive measures would not get us the results we want. But now when it comes to this agenda, the pu punitive measures is all you have to offer. And it, it's so much more than that. You know, we... Uh, police are not immune to human psychology. The same way right. punitive is not going to get us what we need. You know, it's the same thing. But here's the problem. If we don't know what to ask for, we have to go with what has common sense appeal. And um, with this book, right, highlighting the justice-minded, because I'm not exclusive in my perspective. Uh, maybe I'm willing to risk it, risk it all, sure. But in, in the way that I see things, one of the beauties, one of the biggest blessings in being a whistleblower is over 2,000 cops across the nation, even some from overseas, have reached out after watching the documentary I was featured in or reading yes. an article or seeing an interview. And, you know, I call us the justice-minded. The justice-minded exists. We simply need a seat at the table. If people are waiting for a whole bunch of Edwin Raymonds to change the system, it's just not going to happen. It's, it's really not even fair to have to risk so much. As a society, our objective is to create a platform, create an environment where it's not risky to speak out, where we're seeking the, the perspective and the voices 
of those who are justice-minded, those yes. who are employed by the system, but can still see its detriments. So what does that reform begin to look like? I mean, you write, cops are created by a system, function in a system, and are rewarded by a system that sees black men as threats. Harassing men of color is not an offshoot of the job or a side effect of the job. It is the job. And I think people who've lived in cities like New York have seen this many, many days of their lives, even from cops who got in to try to do some good. How does that reform begin to be implemented? I mean, does it begin with something like civilian review boards? How how would you like to see widespread reform at least begin? And, and does that require the, the public getting a big education before it can happen? Well, yeah, I'll start there. The public, we have to know what, we, what we're demanding. We, we have to know what we need. And again, the common sense appeal that we've been hearing for years, some of it makes sense, but a lot of it, things that you would have never imagined are necessary, and that's what I include in the book. And in one of the rare times that I'll agree with former Commissioner Bratton, you know, in his book, he said, you can seriously undermine an organization by putting the right people in the wrong positions, and also by putting the wrong people in the right positions. We have to find the justice-minded and, at a minimum, put them in the room, um, but at a maximum, put them in positions of leadership. If we do that, we will have a different police system in a short time. Um, for the stop and first case back in 2013, 2014, um, the judge made the right ruling by saying that um, the way in which the NYPD engaged in stop and frisk was unconstitutional. But then the federal monitor, in one of the things that they, they were um, kept an eye on, was the same supervisors that were responsible for pressuring cops to engage in unlawful stop and frisk were now responsible for monitoring the new measures. And it's like, no, they, they, they were the ones that were the problem in the first place. We have to find the visionaries, the justice-minded, those who can see, see the system for what it is. We have to put them into the positions uh, that's necessary. You know, it's, it's many moving parts to change this. And I would say it starts with the elected officials that can appoint yes. the police leadership. And in most cities, that's the mayor. We need to make sure whoever the mayor is, they understand this vision and they can appoint, appoint the people that can carry it out. That's beautifully said, by the way. You know, the, the, the moment that Joe Biden's campaign in 2020 most inspired me was when he received the nomination at the Democratic Convention. And he actually said in a, in a presidential campaign nomination speech said, we have to root out white supremacy in our police force. I couldn't believe a guy running for president said that. And it sounds great, but I mean, I don't know how that is implemented. How, how would that ever begin when these police forces are all like their own individual countries in each individual state? It, well, that's a good, good point because the 10th amendment is what policing fall under is in, 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 the, in the executive branch. And, that's the same amendment that gives states their individual rights. Um, so you're right about that. Um, this is where we need governors to be involved. But one of the things that, you know, I probably should have spoken more about in the book that I'll say here, and, and it's a blessing to have been in a position to, to be able to say this, you know, with, with conviction, something that I, that I never expected to, to experience, a plethora of white officers, white people who are officers who saw who also saw the system for what it was. I didn't expect to see that because as a kid, especially, it, it was again, it was just very 
to me very logical that the experiences that I was having and other young black men and black boys were having was because the officers were white and they were probably bigots and had you know certain biases and races. When I when I met fellow officers um, from Nassau County and Suffolk County out in Long Island who also saw the system for what it was, I don't think they get enough credit. Granted, it's probably even more risky for them to speak out because they go back home to these these cop enclaves where you know it could be risky for them and their families to speak out. But we have a lot of people. They just need to. They need a. They need a soft landing. They need to know that yeah. if they were able to, if they were ever to speak out, that it wouldn't be career suicide. Honestly, I I can't wait to see uh, the the movie based on your life because this whole experience you had of being a cop and the being <laughs> oh. a cop while also being uh, an activist for reform and being part of a class action suit at the same time, to me, it's such a fascinating yeah. dichotomy you lived in. How did they retaliate against you, sir? It, it uh. I mean, it started with uh, assignments, you know, um, in the paramilitary organization that police departments are, your supervisor can just ruin your quality of life drastically. And every measure that they could take to make sure that, you know, I, I was having a terrible experience at work, they did it. I walked in with my head high, my chest out, because uh, I didn't want to give them the satisfaction, but it did affect me. It affected my yeah. mental health. Um it was very difficult to just go to work every day. I had to pray and meditate. It was, it was oh, just step walking into work. Um, I, I, you know, I started therapy and I didn't realize how much this thing that changed and affected me. Uh, but it starts with assignments, um, low evaluations. They, they found clever ways to deny me my promotions. I had to fight. I had to fight like like hell to get promoted to sergeant. And then I get set up by my own subordinate officers. Had to fight ten times harder to get promoted to lieutenant. Um, it was it was it was it was quite quite an uphill battle. It's had lasting effects on me because it it just it wasn't fair. And but you know, as a student of history, there's no avoiding it. You know, given the given the the the, the path that I chose, there's literally no avoiding it. You, you know, I'm trying to uproot a very stubborn, well-oiled system. Um, so I guess there was no avoiding it. But but. Yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a fun experience. That's why I say we're waiting for a whole bunch of people to go through that. We'll never get it. We have to make it where it's not as risky for those who have the knowledge we need to speak out. All my heroes in history of of all countries are the ones who challenge the status quo at great personal risk. Gandhi, Jesus, Anwar Sadat, MLK, Robert Kennedy. And it's it's tragic the suffering you had to endure, but I I I'm glad you're getting so much acclaim for your work. And I'm I'm one, one last question about the NYPD. What really surprised me was that the NYPD is really sort of leading the country in policing for better or for worse, and even internationally, because the claim is that we're the country's safest big city, and so that is influencing uh, police models all around the world, aren't it? Isn't it? 100%. Um, when the Times article came out, you know, it was, uh, the response was international. But one of the things I never expected was, uh, it was Gothenburg, Sweden, where she identified, she calls herself the, 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 Barbara, the Barbara Walters of Sweden. She flew out to interview me and said, several officers in Gothenburg sent her the article anonymously and said, we're having the same issue here. So when she did the research, she learned that 
Gothenburg had sent representatives to Manhattan in the late 90s, early 2000s to learn the system of Comstat, broken windows, quotas, etc. And in Sweden, it's the same issue. But I asked her, what was, who are the proletariat? Because to me, it's pretty homogenous society. And she said, the, her exact words are with the gypsies. That's basically the, the second class citizens that get the receiving ends of the system and they can trace it back to Gothenburg sending representatives to Manhattan. And I was blown away just learning that how wide the NYPD's reach is in spreading this cancer. Last question. How do you think Eric Adams is doing? What counsel would you give? How is it as scary as it seems? He seems like a man who's grown up in the system, mastered the system, and is very resistant to the reform that made him a household name. To re- I mean, re- to reform the system that made him a household yeah, name. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult question because, you know, I do know the mayor and I've had many conversations with him over a decade's worth. And um, I don't understand the decisions that he's made when it comes to, the, to policing, uh, especially when it comes to many of the appointments that have been made I don't see how it fits into the plan of what I believe he was going to do once he became mayor. So at, in being honest in answering that question, I'm, I'm confused. I, I don't. I've, there are things that I fought to suppress successfully that are starting to rear its head again, like um, unlawful stops and searches, you know, yeah. much more than a frisk, but full searches. Um, there are offices lieutenants, even captains reaching out, asking for my assistance. Um, One, because they know I know the mayor. Two, because they know I'm the guy that's willing to risk it all. And what they're being told is they're being trained. New officers are being trained that if you see two or more black folks, black black males in a vehicle, just pull it over. Just pull over the car. If they have an out-of-state plate, pull over the car. If they're driving an infinity pull over the car, even if they're by themselves. This is all racial profiling, you know, galore. And happening under, again, we have to be careful when we see diversity, because if we don't have diversity of thought and ideas, we can be in trouble. Again, given the mayor's history as an activist um, himself, I'm, I'm left the honest, the only way to really answer the question is I'm left confused. You and me both, sir. I, I, I will never understand. I always say they should do stop and frisk on Wall Street because that's where all the real crime is and where all the coke is as well. <laughs> it is such a right. pleasure. I've, I've admired your work for such a long time. Edwin Raymond is the author. The book is An Inconvenient Cop. Sir, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Um, Instagram is where I'm most uh, responsive. It's just e.raymond underscore or Edwin Raymond. Edwin Raymond NYC for Twitter. And um, you can email me at edwinraymond.com and I, I will respond. I, I do my best to respond to everyone. You know, I'm a man on a mission and I'm hoping we can move the needle in the right direction. I don't get to say this too often, but uh, you make me proud to be an American. And I thank you very much for joining us. And uh, this platform is always open to you, sir. Anytime. Thank you, thank sir. You again. Thank you. Thank you.